Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler. This podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. We've got a super interesting discussion coming up. Madeleine Dunnigan talks to author of Queer Intentions, Amelia Abraham, and the author of Good As You, Paul Flynn, about the importance of queer spaces in shaping their individual selves within the LGBTQ community. But first, as always, a roundup of some poignant and important literature recently released. I think uh, the one novel that tops that is The Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. This is a harrowing follow-up to the extraordinary Underground Railroad and a brutal Jim Crow reform school. The Nickel Academy is the focus of Whitehead's new book, where the bodies of murdered young African-American boys were actually discovered buried in the grounds of the institution in 2014. So, yeah, I mean, harrowing is, is, is I suppose, an understatement when we're talking about this, but uh, Whitehead deals with the material in, in quite a, I suppose, human and heartening way. And it's a very compact 200 pages, but extraordinary stuff there. The Man Who Saw Everything by Deborah Levy uh, recently released. Uh, there's a great review of this by Sam Byers in The Guardian. And the sophistication, I, I guess, Levy, Levy's latest work is rooted in our relationship to history. And I suppose the danger of treating history as abstract when our daily actions and relationships hold equal importance. Um, On, um, I guess, a lighter note, but uh, no less poignant, The Falconer by Dana Kazapnik, a new exciting voice in literature and one that happily dances grand theories with street smarts, blistering prose, and a fresh account of growing up in 90s New York. But first, over to our discussion hosted by Madeleine Dunnigan. Where you're talking about the different times that you grew up and the, the different narratives that each of you seems to have experienced, like in a maybe I'm like vastly oversimplifying, but for you, Paul, it seems like it, it went from you know a feeling of uh, being completely not accepted to celebrated and uh, uh, like accepted by mainstream society, and Amelia, the narrative seems to tilt towards like questioning what that acceptance means (laughs) Um, and something I wanted to touch upon was like the fine line between um, celebration and co-opting of queer culture um, acceptance and exploitation and uh, in both of your books you reference Madonna as a a kind of a queer symbol who isn't queer yes Um, and I'd love you to talk a little bit about the fine line and how you navigate it are you pro Madonna, Amelia? Yeah, I love Madonna. I, love Madonna. I think the first, one of my first gay experiences going to the American Life tour with Amazing. my mum, and it was Amazing. like understanding what gay men yes. did on mass <laughs> going to Madonna. Concert. Yes. Um, yeah, I. But then, I mean, I I am a Madonna fan, but in the book, I do talk about how you know she's borrowed a lot of sort of, I don't know, sort of signifiers or, or, you know, voguing's the perfect example. Are you watching Pose at from, the moment? I am. Yeah. I love Pose, yeah. uh, Amazing. Um, but, you know, are you watching the second season? I haven't got there yet, so no spoilers, please. No, no spoilers, but it's framed around, so the narrative arc is framed around the success of Vogue, the song. Interesting. In which it's the best bit of publicity Madonna has had, literally the, the most positive bit of publicity she's had in since hung up do you know what I mean it's, 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 it's an incredible but they're, they're doing it really well and I, th- I think what, what you're getting at with the question is about whether 
Yeah, I think you can see when somebody's doing something dishonestly, when somebody is co-opting something for a s simply commercial reason. I think you can see the difference between what Madonna did at a time when it was in incredibly provocative and upset the establishment. I mean, she, she upset the Vatican City, you know what I mean? She was like, and she, and she, she had that at her heart, that central thing that I think a lot of us had, which was you know, just rejecting Catholic orthodoxy, you know? And she used to talk, that, 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 was, that was woven into her mythology right from the start. She was a, she was, trying to get rid of, exercise herself of uh, religious doctrine. Um, she's, 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 in, she's incredible. The more you think about it, I was just thinking recently actually about that Taylor Swift video, which I would suggest does co-opt gay culture. I was about to say the same thing. Yeah. I, mean, is, I was going to compare the, the two, or even Gaga with Taylor Swift, if you want to be a bit more contemporary. Absolutely, yeah. But, even, but, but with, when you saw the Taylor Swift video recently, she's got, so she pays for basically this gay approval rating by the most famous LGBT people in the world, certainly in America. And then at the same time, Madonna drops this video, not wholly successfully, of course, not with as much uh, hoo-ha around it, with Mickey Blanco. You know, that, that, that's a brave move. She's still making a brave move. She's still using, casting in the Jesus role, a queer person who's openly HIV positive, who's talking about really, you know, he's, he's a, that, she still touches counterculture in a way that I, I don't think, like... I don't think Taylor would understand what that thing was. I don't think she'd, not only would she not know who Mickey Blanco was, she wouldn't care either. <laughs> well, I also think it's quite camp is in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? It's like, you watch like Gaga Telephone and you're like, yeah, this is like camp. And there are references yeah. here. And then you watch the Taylor Swift video and you're like, this is not successful camp to me. This is like a caricature of well, also, gay also, people also, are what we do. She, she does something quite sort of evil at the end of it, where she seems to compare her experience of falling out with another pop star online with the experience of gay people and homophobia and you're like that's actually quite insulting it's like if you're going to make up with Katy Perry at the end of your video and try and equate that with centuries of <laughs> civil rights struggle do you, do you know what I mean? it's, like, it's, it's not the same thing it's a leap for sure yes. um but I think yeah to conclude we can tell when something's yeah. authentic and when it isn't and everyone will have a different opinion on that you know like I wrote about the Taylor Swift thing and people got real mad oh, did and they? said well yeah you're not well, people, people defending people her. were like you're not encouraging allyship and this is like scathing well, but I was like I just said the video shit like she's welcome to donate the money to glad okay. any or whatever anyway but I think we can tell when something's yeah. authentic and when it's not and it's the same for fashion brands and it's the same you know, it's the same when you put you know, queer bodies in your fashion campaigns or on your catwalks. Also, with, with, with fashion brands particularly, this is another one of my pet bugbears, it's like, if any fashion brand really wanted to support gay people, they would place an advert in gay magazines, <laughs> which they've systematically refused to do since they began. Do you know what I mean? It's like, they, they do, you know, you can, you can, you, you can, you can and, and who do they think wear these clothes? You know, it's not straight blokes. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, yeah, it's, it's a slight like bugbear of mine. I, lo I loved your story in uh, in in Manchester in a was it your first job in a record shop and yes, that was yeah. and you were like and I just told them all who I was by saying the last record I bought was Kylie Minogue. Yeah. <laughs> Fact, Kylie. Um, but yeah, did you guys have any yeah. your favourite people that you interviewed? Um, there are loads of people I love meeting. I guess Lala Zanel was one of my favourites because 
just what what a wonderful, amazing person. So basically, Lala Zanel is a African American trans woman from Detroit, living in New York, who at the time worked at the Anti Violence Project, which is a charity in New York that fights homophobia and transphobia. Now she works for the ACLU. But um, I interviewed her in our office about violence towards trans women of color in America, and. I guess what really hit home, other than how disproportionate the level of violence this category of people face is, is that she falls within this group herself and has experienced this violence herself and she goes to work every day and faces it head on. And there's just like so much emotional labour involved in that. And she's kind of become this this mother figure for a lot of trans people, which we, you know, we see happening a lot. We, that one, of, one of the things that's like Poe's sort of, depicts so well um but she was just completely inspiring because also as as well as saying you know it's it's easy to say trump allowed this situation to get worse to allow a spike in hate crimes towards trans women of color she said the problem was already there he just gave us a free pass to do that you know and actually without without getting too angry she said i think we just need like more education we need a better justice system that just doesn't sort of like trap people in the prison industrial complex um we need a greater understanding of gender and how it's not fixed among society at large and she she wasn't angry at the perpetrator of this violence she was just looking at like the bigger structural problems and how she could keep a cool head like really impressed me and she also i guess what what i took away from it was when she said you know, being an ally is about more than just saying you're an ally. It's about actually giving up your privilege. It's like, what are you actually doing every day, you know? Um, and I guess meeting her for me was like a real, what am I doing moment? <laughs> like, you know, I'm writing this book, great, but this is also kind of my job. You know, what more could I do? Um, so it gave me a lot of food for thought, I suppose. And I was just, I was just really blown away by her, her bravery. I tell you the other thing as well with like, when, when you're approaching people about a book, it's like, because this is essentially, it's your thing. It's not like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm asking you to be, to be in a magazine or in a newspaper. This is like, you're sort of asking people for a favour on your behalf. And even just the kindness of people saying, I will talk to you for your project. I will trust you. I will like, I will allow you to tell this story. It's so... It's so generous of them, isn't it? It's like, I, I, all, all, the, all the way through, there was like, I think, did, did you find it an education in yourself? Did you feel like you'd come away knowing much more about LGBTQ culture than you did beforehand? I, I did, but not as much as I pretend to have in the book, <laughs> because you, I'm kind of trying to take you on the journey, right? Yeah. And I don't want to assume the reader is someone who knows loads about queer culture already. I really wanted to make it super accessible for anyone that reads it. I think and that's so one of the beauties of it, though, isn't it? That, that you, you, you talk on those two levels. Like, for somebody who does know a lot, will get a lot out of it, and people that don't will Thank too. you. I was definitely trying to hit both, and I think part of doing that is sometimes to sort of just be a conduit for the reader to learn something. And so like, I didn't want to write it from the perspective, like I know so much, here's all the things I know. Even when I knew something, I conveyed it like it was new, you know? So not as much of it was new information as I might sort of try to sort of convey. But anyway, I guess what what I would say about that point about people you meet giving up your time is that 
overall, when I finished the project and I looked back on it and was like, right, what the fuck is the conclusion? What have I learned? One of the things was, wow, there are still LGBTQ plus people around the world who are pure strangers who were happy to give up their time and their resources, take me into their lives, take me to a queer club and get me drunk, introduce me to their friends, go on a march with me, all this stuff. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because we they feel like this is an important topic, the mainstream of queer culture, and they also feel like we have something in common. And that really reassured me that there is such thing as like this this phrase we always bandy around like an LGBTQ plus family or community. Yeah. Like actually really ha came away with a restored faith in that idea. Amazing, what brilliant things to take did, away. Did but you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I always, I have a sort of implicit, I'm quite sort of northern and sentimental. I've got quite a sort of chocolate box <laughs> approach to, to to LGBTQ people. I think like we, we tend to, you know, no one else is going to help us out. So we have to help each other. And I, I, I kind of have felt that over the years a lot. And certainly with the book, it's like... the. The one person that I wanted to, that really, really touched me was so I I, I have absolute paucity of, of gay education. I've like and I can't just blame it on going to school. I had to like even when I sat down to do this, I was like, I don't know how Peter Tatchell ended up in London. I don't know that story. I don't. The one thing that really my sort of I, I basically there's a. Um, there's a library at the London School of Economics. Have you been there to the whole Carpenter Institute? Luke Howard, the DJ, told me about it. It's an absolutely incredible place. It's basically got every gay flyer, every newspaper report, every bit of gay literature. It's, it's, it's the gay library of London. It's an incredible place. And you can get visitors past there. And I went there for two weeks before I even started, just after I signed the contract, just to make sort of learn these kind of basics that was like, even if it wasn't the, of the period I, that I was covering in the book, I wanted to know what like how did like who were those people on the front line who were those people that marched in the first gay pride march i didn't know when i didn't know the difference between uh, legalization in england wales and uh, england scotland and ireland Do you know what i mean it was like, so much that i didn't know and the one thing that I really struck me was so i wanted to do i wanted almost to atone for not having written about it enough over my working career. I wanted to do a big chapter. I knew that, like, my pivotal chapter would be about HIV and AIDS. And I was... I didn't know who, even though it's a charity that I've known all practically my entire adult life, I didn't know the Terence Higgins Trust. I didn't know who it was named after. I had no idea who Terence Higgins was. So part of my research at the Hall Carpenter Institute uncovered that it was this guy who's been in the Navy. He was one of the first... Uh, AIDS deaths. I think his uh, number at the, um, I don't know which, the Westminster Hospital, hospital was 001 or 002. Um, and I was just like, I have to get this guy in somehow. And I was like, did a little bit more research on him, eventually found that his boyfriend from the time was still living. I was like, I ju it just became this mission statement. I have to get hold of this guy. After, and I tried all avenues that I could think of to get hold of him. Lots of people that were prominent figures in the HIV community. Tried to find, who, does anybody know Rupert? He's called Rupert Whitaker. And eventually I found him on Facebook and just sent him a message. And he'd, he, he'd not got back immediately, but it was about th the third message that came through. He'd, he eventually did get back and said, he'd love to please come over to my house tomorrow. Well, I'll, I'll chat to you. I'd love to tell you the story of, all, of everything that happened. Travelled down to South London, 
went and sat in his house, turned the tape recorder on, five hours later, turned the tape recorder off, kind of travelled back to East London in a bit of a trance, closed my door behind me, I was just burst into tears. I was like, this is like, this guy has just told the story. That, and, and at that point I was like, actually, this feels like it's got some sort of weight behind it and it feels like you're doing something that's not a book about Kylie Minogue and Big Brother. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you both, could you tell me a bit about um, your favourite uh, spaces that you... I, well, you've got this great phrase in your book, Amelia, where you learnt to do gay, not just be gay, yeah, which I think fun, applies fun, for, fun. to both of you. And you both... And music is so central to your yeah. book, Paul. So yeah. I'd love to know a bit about the clubs and the spaces that you guys um, grew up in and why they're still important, which feels particularly pertinent in the time that we're living in where there's been so many closures. I actually just had a moment. I stopped going out about two years ago. I'm 47 years old. I was like, I can't be that person that's knotted in my 50s, like wandering around, kind of like. So I you've just... got three more years. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Get out there. I, it was it was it was a decision that sort of found me them rather than me okay, finding yeah. it sort of thing. I was I was I just I just I can't do it anymore. I've had enough nights out now. There, there, well, there are all no my respect because I've nearly stopped and I'm only twenty eight. <laughs> Guys, we're going out after this. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, we we did go. Me and my boyfriend went to Black Pride. So, and I, I genuinely touched a moment that I don't think I've touched in in. in pretty much in, in probably in 10 years, maybe maybe even longer, where it's like something actually special, something actually, an actual shift in gay culture, LGBT, the queer culture, LGBTQ culture, it's actually happening in this park. You can actually see it. You can touch it. There's like, suddenly we're not surrounded by that kind of tinny, trebly kind of dance music that gets played all over Soho when the big commercial pride is on. It was like, it was dancehall, it was ragger, it was grime. It was like, you're like... My can God. you explain to the viewers Black Pride? So Black Pride was set up as... the view. Yeah, no, no, yes. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you've, you've been, you've been, haven't you? I've actually not been, but I've oh heard God, everyone I know saying the same about it, it how was, amazing it is. I mean, it was literally, it was queues around, not far from my flat, and there was queues around the block. And I was like, so, so Black Pride is a, a, a faction that, that was set up because people of colour felt like they had not been included properly in what now looks to me, having been to a Black Pride event, which is held in a park, uh, the Sunday after the main London Pride, and it, suddenly you look at what the big commercial Pride is, and you're like, "That's white Pride," and it is. You know, it's like yeah. it, it, it's it, it's a Pride that is one, one of the fundamental, one of the really difficult questions I have to ask myself. I think as I get older, and and as as white gay men's culture gets more and more kind of, I mean, or less and less problematic, is are we just becoming another? fucking wing of the patriarchy is that what we are now and I, I really do want to kind of try and fight against that thing and slipping into that thing but so it, it was important for me to go for me to go to this thing but it, it, it's the same thing that I felt when I first went into a gay club at, at 17 years old there's a magic in the air you feel you can touch something that is the jubilance of people 
fighting against their struggle, <laughs> fighting for their inclusion. And they're going to do it because they're LGBTQ. They're not going to do it quietly. They're going to do it with brilliant music. They're going to do it with a non... They banned the Home Office from having a stall there because how dare they? Is this, this is everything that was going on in that park that afternoon was like, as like, if I was... Yeah, it, it, it blew my mind. It actually blew my mind. Interestingly, I went on Pride Weekend to the sort of anti-Pride that popped up right, on the yeah, Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Was it, I didn't was... go on the Sunday, but it was similarly... It, I wouldn't say it was lit, like, <laughs> like that, but, <laughs> but it, was, it felt important and it felt political and walking... So basically what it was is the main Pride has become so corporatised, other than being, you know, very white, it... It's incredibly corporatized. I mean, it's it's also incredible. The, the, the one word that you don't want to use because you don't want to diss, diss your own culture. It's incredibly naff. It yeah, it's, looks it's naff. Yeah, it's naff. It just looks fucking horrible. It's like, and, and so we become a part of this kind of coarsening and cheapening of a beautiful. Doesn't make you proud to be gay, does it? Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's kind of. Like, I'm like. Doesn't make me proud. I, I, I mean, I, I've always had a, a slight kind of like not not a, a, a personal issue, and I wonder whether this but it sort of connects to some sort of, oh, I don't know, some self-loathing or something. But it's like, I, I, the, the first time I ever went to a Pride March, which was, you know, when it was a protest, and it was, I think it was 1991 or 1992, and it was like, and I was like, I just like, there's something about this en masse that feels like it's amazing to watch, but I don't know whether I feel part of that thing, and I don't know... I, I don't know. I felt, I felt I felt more like walking into Haggerston Park on the Sunday Black Pride. I was like, I feel like I should be here. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's just it's just beautiful. It's just like everywhere you look around, it's like this is like this is this is what it should be about. Yeah, I guess I don't feel a place at Pride, main Pride in London. It's just like Google, Facebook. Barry's boot camp. It's just and <laughs> and the stream. You know, there are organizations part of the parade, but I just think the balance is off. So the um corporate logos. Um there's also that thing as, as well, isn't there, of like as it gets bigger, that you have to apply to to have a place on this thing. That's like, can you imagine if they did that about like an anti-Brexit march? It's like you've got to you've got to apply to have a place on it, and like you've got to present yourself in a certain way, or like have a certain amount of money to be able to like a, a, a protest march is a protest. Yeah. It's like yeah. just let people march. Well, that's the thing. It's not a protest, is it? And yeah, you have to have a wristband to join it. And if you don't have one, you can't access it, which is deeply uninclusive. You know, in other cities that I went to for my book, like in Amsterdam, well, actually in Amsterdam, you have to get onto a boat, but there is another march you can be, anyone can be in called Pride Walk. Um, and then also in Berlin, anyone can join the parade. It's not cordoned yeah. off from the rest of the city, which is exactly how it should be. Like LGBTQ plus people should be able to walk in their own fucking Pride Parade without having to apply for a wristband four months in advance or pay for the privilege. And so it was really nice to go to an event where people were sort of trying to make a stand against this and where organisations who felt like they couldn't afford a place in Pride or um, they, you know, didn't have the infrastructure to deal with the bureaucracy of, like, applying for a place in Pride actually just sort of thought, OK, let's have our own gathering. And so these groups like the Outside Project, which is uh, for LGBTQ plus homelessness, um, 
lesbians and gays support the migrants and Voices for, which is like a new youth organization. There's a bunch of different, many more organizations assembled in a park. And basically we did speeches. We all hung out. We were bitched about the main parade. There was like a thousand people. We talked about the reasons that it's shit and what it should be like. Um, and then we decided to march behind the parade. And yeah, it was like, it was really beautiful because everybody was chanting political messages and also chanting, we're here, we're queer, we are not going shopping, which I think basically sums up precisely how I feel about Pride. The only dampener on events was the fact that the police then kettled us and wouldn't let us go near the main parade. Um, and then Barry's boot camp drowned everyone out with their shit dance music. But other than that, it was a very joyous event. And I actually think that next year it will really, really, really grow. Like, I, I, I think the resistance to what... Because you look at those... I, I love... This is what I love about your book as well. You you, you sort of waver. You, you leave the questions hanging in the air about like this thing. So when, when I go to, like, the week before Pride, and I'm using a Santander cash machine... And there's a rainbow flag on there. And obviously a bit of me is like total eye roll. And then a bit of me is like, well, no, because like for everybody else on Basel Green Road who doesn't, you know, maybe, maybe it is a good thing to see that their cash point is gay for a week. Maybe that, maybe that does work in some way. But then I'm like, oh, come, come on. This is like, these, these are banks. The situation <laughs> where there was like rainbow lanyards, but just not enough and sorry you missed and it was just like I'm I'm, 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 I'm I think as, as, as soon as things as soon as things that are as soon as resistance movements become attached to money as well like I mean literally to money with banks I'm like that the Alan Turing thing on the 50 pound note at the moment I'm really kind of like do I feel good about that or do I not feel good about it it's like I mean quite aside from the fact that it's you know um, cuts to services, closing down of spaces, like the actual fiscal changes yeah. to welfare services and public spaces that are going to have effects on real people's real life. It just seems so particularly sort of weird as well to put him on a £50 note, which, A, nobody uses. It's the only, <laughs> the only currency apart from Scottish £10 notes that people will actually refuse you to use. It's like... I it's like only fucking... use them. <laughs> That's a London upbringing compared to a Manchester <laughs> Joke, I don't. I've never had one, but buy my Birkin, baby. <laughs> Well, brilliant and insightful discussion into the recent history of queer culture there. As always, check out our full cultural events listings at secondhome.io. See you next time.